0: Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 18, San Andreas Fault. Thanks for listening. Oh my goodness. Really? The San Andreas Fault in California. Hmm. Yeah, I got some things to say about San Andreas Fault. For many years, that was the place to talk about earthquakes. In other words, if you were teaching a geology 101 class and it was time to talk about earthquakes, you talked about the San Andreas Fault in California, man. And this is the first of I think 3 episodes that we'll devote to earthquakes. And I'd like to say up front that since I've been teaching in Washington for all of my career 30 years, um I have been doing more and more with earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. Not because I was out of it, but because we were out of it. Meaning that in the late 1980s and early 90s, when I started my teaching career, very little was known about earthquake history here in the Pacific Northwest. So I was truly teaching about the San Andreas Fault in California, and that was the end of the earthquake unit, even though I was living in Washington. But over the last 25 years... I have added more and more and more earthquake content into my geology course because there has been an absolutely amazing and a staggering amount of new information coming in about risk, earthquake risk, seismic risk here in the Pacific Northwest, to the point where we are freaking people out left and right. And to tell you exactly why people are so worried up here in the Pacific Northwest, I choose to wait for the next couple of episodes to deal with Pacific Northwest uh, earthquake science. Hey, what a way to start a San Andreas Fault episode, saying you're going to talk about something else that's really exciting in future episodes. That was probably a mistake. But anyway, you're still here. And it's time for us to talk about the San Andreas Fault. Uh, There are still frustrating questions that remain about the San Andreas Fault. But back in the 1960s and early 1970s, oh my goodness, there was such a leap forward in understanding. And I want to capture some of that excitement with you today. And also go back more than 100 years to the great earthquake of 1906 in downtown San Francisco. The event that really put earthquake science on the map. And I'll explain there as well. So let's start, before we talk about the nitty gritty of California, let's start with just the basics of what an earthquake actually is. Some of you associate the word earthquake with the word fault. In fact, you hear non scientists saying earthquake fault. You know, it's kind of redundant for us, but, you know, fault line, that's another one. Now, oh, we're living near the fault line. Well, uh, a fault is a plane, and where the plane intersects the surface, it's a line, I guess. But, uh, all right, we don't need to be all petty about it, do we? No, we don't. So, with my courses, Geology 101, I start with a very um, scintillating discussion about the difference between two words. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's not scintillating. But I, I find it uh, an effective way to start a discussion of earthquakes. There's a word called stress and there's a word called strain. And socially, we use those words interchangeably, don't we? Hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a while. Oh, man, I'm under a lot of stress and strain. And you're like, yeah, okay, I, I feel you, man. Yeah, a lot of stress and strain. But if we're talking about physics and we're talking about science, stress, strain, very different terms mean very different things. And to understand the difference between stress and strain is to totally understand why earthquakes happen. So let's do it. Let me read to you the basic definition of these two terms in our little course pack. Stress. The force applied to an object, strain, the change in the shape and size of the stressed object. That's a Nick Sentner special. That's taking something and putting in my words that I think will reach a lot of people without a lot of background in science. So I've mentioned before I'm not a prop guy. It's only really one lecture I bring in a bunch of like wooden blocks and big hunk candy and all that kind of stuff. But I, I do bring in a little prop um, for this lecture, and it's a little rubber band that I grab out of my desk, an old rubber band, and I have it around my left wrist next to my wristwatch to make sure that I don't forget the prop. And it's at this point I'm like, okay, so we just read the definitions, and uh, you know, good teaching is not just reading definitions, is it? And the students are like, oh, yeah, I do that in some like classes. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, I feel like you deserve more than us just reading definitions together, so let me try to uh, teach. Let me try to teach the difference. So then I pull this little rubber band off of my wrist, and I say, here's an object. It's a rubber band. And I have two hands and fingers, thankfully, and... Um, I'm going to start stretching this rubber band in front of you. So I hold this rubber band out in front of me, very dramatic, uh, thespian's type of a way, and I start to stretch the rubber band using my fingers. And so I narrate as I do this, and I say, well, here's a rubber band, but my fingers are applying a stress. In fact, I, Nick Zetner, if it's third person Thursday, Nick Zetner's applying a stress to the rubber band. Now, imagine if you were seeing this rubber band and I was not here, like I was invisible. And maybe, you know, after the first exam, you were hoping that I didn't exist. So pretend I'm invisible and you're just looking at this rubber band, this green rubber band, hovering in front of you in midair. And notice that this object, this green rubber band, is starting to change its shape. Because that's me, invisible Nick Zentner, applying a stress. to the the rubber band. So what's the difference between stress and strain? Well, you're observing the change in the rubber band. You're observing strain. Strain is the change in the shape and the size of the stressed object. You can measure strain every second. You can measure the distance from one side of the rubber band to the other. You can measure all sorts of things. In every second, the strain strain is going to be different, isn't it? We're going to keep changing the shape of the size of this rubber band. But it's very difficult to measure the stress. You can't really measure my invisible fingers being applied, this force being applied to the rubber band, I say. Okay, and then, you know, some of the students write that down, and they've kind of got the difference, and they use the little rubber band picture in their notes, and everybody seems to be... Okay, and then we move on to the next concept. And I remind them, like, what are we doing? Why are we talking about a rubber band? We're trying to figure out what an earthquake is. And I'm reminding you of that right now as well. Next concept. We all know that this rubber band is elastic. What does that mean? And students will say, it stretches. Or, uh, you can bend it. I'm like, well, kind of, but what truly is Elasticity. If you have an object that's truly elastic, what does that mean? And rarely do I get a student to kind of enunciate what we want, but it's this. If you're truly elastic, you apply stress, you create strain, but then if you remove the stress... The object has the ability to go back to its original shape and size. That's truly what an elastic body is. Let me say it again. That seemed like a lot of words. It's not that hard, though, I don't think. We sometimes call a rubber band an elastic band, meaning if we stretch it and then let go, it'll go back to the way that it was. That's the elastic nature of that substance, of that, of that object. And in the case of this rubber band, I'm applying the stress with my fingers. If I remove the stress with my fingers, the elastic rubber band goes back to the way that it was. Then I say, would you believe me if I told you that rocks are elastic? Like we have laboratories that can measure crazy amounts of stress that you put into these rocks, and then you remove the stress, and the rocks, if given the right conditions and the amount of time, the rocks will slowly morph back to the way they were. I tell my students, just take my word for it. I've never seen it personally myself, but I've I've been told in these labs, these analytical labs, that you can actually get rocks to behave elastically. Okay, fine. Let's finish the thought. If you are elastic... That means you have an elastic limit. This is the biggest point so far in our episode. An elastic limit. What's that? It's the point of no return. We all know we can take the rubber band and I can continue to stretch it. And I can let go and the rubber band goes back to the way that it was. But we know that if I go back to stretching it and I stretch more and more and more, and then I actually do it for the students. If I just keep... You know, big theater performance now. If I just keep, keep, keep with my fingers more and more stress. If I never back off with the stress, I'm doing this with my, I'm doing this with a rubber band right now in the room here in the podcast episode. <laughs> keep going. And then finally, bah, ouch. You snap the rubber band. I have exceeded the elastic limit of the rubber band. I never removed the stress that I was pumping into the rubber band, and I snapped the rubber band. So what's an earthquake? You got it. Rocks have an elastic limit just like a rubber band does. And the stresses that are being pumped into certain rocks at certain points around the world, those stresses never back off. And so you keep snapping rocks. You keep breaking rocks. You keep pumping stress into certain rocks in certain mountains until you have a failure, an earthquake. So the next time you read or hear or see a a tweet about some terrifying earthquake someplace, you can think about the human suffering because you're a reasonable person with a heart and a soul. But scientifically, I want you to remember that some rock snapped nearby, typically underground. We snapped a rubber band. That's what an earthquake is. We've exceeded the elastic limit of that rock. We got it? Okay. We know plate tectonics now. We know that most earthquakes happen at plate boundaries. And we know, therefore, why the stresses are being pumped into certain rocks. We're pumping a lot of stress into rocks at plate boundaries because these plates are fighting with each other. If you're in the middle of a tectonic plate, you're not going to be pumping a bunch of stress into those rocks. That's why earthquakes are not a big deal in Chicago, but they are in Seattle or San Francisco. Feeling comfortable there? Okay. Next concept. There is a point on a fault underground where the rubber band begins to fail first. It's an awkward statement, but let me try it again. I'm talking about something called the focus of an earthquake. The focus or the hypocenter of an earthquake. What is it? It's the point of initial failure underground. It's the point in the subsurface where the rock begins to snap. And then if it's on a fault plane, that failure continues to sweep across the fault plane itself. But hypothetically, there's one point of initial failure, and that's called the focus of an earthquake or a hypocenter. Why is that important? Well, there's a bunch of energy. There's a bunch of seismic waves. There are a bunch of seismic waves that radiate out in all directions through the Earth interior from that hypocenter. So where the ground first breaks underground, that's the initiating point of our seismic wave energy, our earthquake waves. And you're like, oh, is that the same as epicenter? Because I've heard of epicenter. No, that's different. Epicenter is a point on the surface of the Earth that's directly above the hypocenter. The hypocenter is underground, where the rock first broke, And there are different depths that you can get to the hypocenter from the surface. But the epicenter is known to every, that term is known to everybody because uh, first responders are trying to figure out where the epicenter is and getting help there because that's the point on the surface of the earth that's as close as humanly possible to have your subdivision next to the hypocenter. And if there's a lot of energy released and it's a big magnitude earthquake, it is a grim scene at the epicenter. That gets us quickly to magnitudes, and the Richter scale devised by Charles Richter. It's a scale that was designed for California earthquakes. The Richter scale is particularly good for uh, earthquakes up to magnitude seven. But once we get to these great earthquakes, which we'll be talking about up in the Pacific Northwest or Japan or Sumatra, the Richter scale does not do a good job of Um, capturing that amount of energy. So we'll go to a moment magnitude scale for those. But for the California earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault, it is the Richter scale that is the common way to measure the amount of energy being released from a hypocenter. You've heard the Richter scale. You've heard these numbers like, oh, that was a 5.2 or a 3.1 or a 7.9. What do those numbers mean? Why do they have decimal points? Well, the Richter scale basically is a scale goes from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst earthquake. It's kind of an open-ended scale, but 10 is in the Richter scale world is kind of the end of the line. And the idea is we're compressing all these crazy amounts of uh, variable amounts of energy released from the hypocenter into this very simple 1 to 10 scale. And there's different ways to describe this, but I choose to do it this way. If you take the amount of energy released during a magnitude 4.0 earthquake on the Richter scale, and then compare that to the amount of energy coming out of a hypocenter for a magnitude 5.0 on the Richter scale, the amount of energy being released by the hypocenter is 10 times. 10 times the energy released of a magnitude 4 compared to a magnitude 5. But here's how this scale works. It's a logarithmic scale. So if we compare the energy of a magnitude 4 with a magnitude 6, that's 10 times 10, the amount of energy released. So there's 100 times the energy released from a magnitude 6 than a magnitude 4. If we compare magnitude 4 with a magnitude 7, we we compare 10 times 10 times 10. Now we're up to 30 times. Oh, shit. 10 times 10 times 10. A thousand times compared to the magnitude 4. Do you see how this works? We need those decimal points because we have a crazy range of energy um, release uh, just between whole numbers on the Richter scale. Uh, That was not my best effort to explain the Richter scale, but I want to move on. Sorry. Um, I do want to talk about the San Andreas Fault itself, and that's kind of what I was thinking about as I was doing the Richter scale deal, to be honest with you. So, as plate tectonics became accepted worldwide in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, there was tremendous excitement, and for good reason, And most of the plate boundaries were kind of um, mysterious or kind of diffuse or underwater or when they deal with these trenches and like I can't relate to that, like a deep ocean trench, like the Marianas Trench. I've heard of that, but it's so deep I don't get what's going on there. My point is the San Andreas Fault became a major feature and a major story with the early adoption of plate tectonics because Here we had millions of people living within a stone's throw of a plate boundary. It wasn't a trench. It wasn't an underwater sea uh, sea seafloor spreading center. It was a crack running right down the state of California. And it wasn't just any old crack. It was the San Andreas Fault, which is the plate boundary, the transformed plate boundary between the North American plate on the east side of the fault and the Pacific plate on the west side of the fault. And maps started showing up in newspapers. Maps of the state of California with a huge crack going right down the middle of it. A huge crack going from San Francisco, like downtown San Francisco, running to the south to the east of Los Angeles and then down into the Gulf of California in Mexico. And this was disturbing to many. You're kidding me. This new thing called plate tectonics with moving tectonic plates? All right, And two of the biggest plates in the world are trying to move past each other in our state? Underneath the freeway that I drive to work every day? Oh, my goodness. And as soon as maps and basic concepts of the San Andreas Fault became uh, out there, became absorbed, I guess... Uh, There was a big earthquake in 1971 in Los Angeles area, in the San Fernando Valley. And there was also a lot of recollection of the 1906 great earthquake in San Francisco that destroyed most of downtown San Francisco, mostly due to fire. So what do we know about the San Andreas Fault? We know that the North American plate and the Pacific plate continue to have disagreements. The North American plate moves southwest a couple inches a year. The Pacific plate moves northwest a couple of inches a year. That's not really a collision. That's not really a divergent or separation. That's a grinding past each other thing. And so there was euphoria that we finally figured out why earthquakes were happening in California. And there were cocky young geologists. I, I'm still looking for this old film that I used to show at the beginning of my teaching career. I wish I could f- figure out how to find that thing on YouTube or something. I can't remember the name of it, but it had this corny 70s music and uh, looked like Streets of San Francisco from, uh, from TV. But they had this geologist who was probably 33 years old and he had like big sideburns and this groovy, you know, open collared shirt. He's looking right into the camera and he says something like, you know, by the year 2000, we'll be able to forecast every earthquake in California. And he had good reason to be cocky because they just made this huge uh, breakthrough and understanding of why earthquakes were happening regularly. It's a plate boundary. There's tectonic plates. That's all been figured out. But if you ask me and many, we've made hardly any progress in the last generation with forecasting earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault. And basic questions remain. Like what? Well, we don't have any evidence that the entire length of the San Andreas Fault moves at once during an earthquake. Like the San Andreas Fault runs from the Gulf of California in Mexico all the way up to Cape Mendocino in Northern California, and then it turns out to sea. So that's like a 1,000 miles or more along the length of the San Andreas Fault. There's no evidence that a huge earthquake ever caused the entire San Andreas Fault to rupture at one, during one earthquake. The big earthquake in 1906 ruptured everything north of San Francisco to Cape Mendocino. That's a pretty big section of the San Andreas Fault, but everything south of San Francisco did not slip during the earthquake. Do you remember our episode a couple weeks ago or a couple times ago? Uh, when you have an earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, the land slips sideways. I'm doing this with my arms right now. Two arms next to each other and I have a big earthquake and I just shift my arms uh, past each other. I grind them laterally or shift them laterally. I don't do any up or down with my arms. And so that's the story. And historically... And even prehistorically, we've been able to determine that there are individual segments of the San Andreas Fault that release energy. Again, the whole length doesn't go at once. It's usually a segment that fails, releases a bunch of energy, shakes the ground, makes people nervous, possibly kills a few people, structural damage, et cetera, Northridge, 1994, for instance. But the the frustration is, if you have a segment of the San Andreas Fault and you survive, does that mean your segment is in good shape for the next 500 years? Like, is that a good thing that you just made it through an earthquake on your segment of the San Andreas Fault? We don't know. If you release energy on one segment, does that load energy onto the segment next door? Does it make it twice as likely or any factor more likely to have a quake? We don't know. Are there certain segments that rupture regularly and other segments that have not done anything for a thousand years? We don't know. Now, the few... Geologists who've been actively working on this are trying to get the answer. And one of the techniques in the last 25 years has been to take a backhoe, literally a backhoe, and to go to a segment of the San Andreas Fault and dig a hole with your backhoe, dig a trench perpendicular to the trace of the fault, expose walls of the San Andreas Fault, find some layers of dirt that have material in them that you can get dates out of carbon-rich layers, typically. And then if you can figure out the age of these little mini layers and figure out which layers broke and which layers did not break, in other words, look for evidence of prehistoric earthquakes. And if you have enough evidence of prehistoric earthquakes multiple times in one trench, what you really want to do is then work up a history and figure out, oh, there was 300 years between this quake and this quake, And then it was only 75 years before the next... In other words, you want to get a a back catalog of earthquakes for each segment of the San Andreas Fault. We just don't have that. There's a famous place called the Carrizo Plain where this has been worked out, going back a few earthquakes. But it's not like the work you've done at one segment has much to do with the next segment. To be honest, it looks like each segment has its own personality. And there's factors involved. There's the the tra- or the trend of the fault through there. Is it like a north-south thing? Is it an east-west thing? Uh, th- what kind of rock is in that segment of the San Andreas Fault? There's softer, slippier rocks. There's harder rocks. Uh, how much fill is there? How much bedrock is there? How much groundwater has been pumped into the area? Um, plenty of other factors I don't know about. But to, to me, being a teacher of Geology 101 for the last 30 years, I fully expected to continue to advance my teaching of the San Andreas Fault. And unless I'm missing something, being a couple states away, I'm still teaching the stuff that I taught in 1990. Now, many in geology know this rule, especially with volcanic or earthquake hazards or floods or anything. The sad part is you're only going to get a ton of money to hire a bunch of people to do all this careful work if there's a huge catastrophic event. In other words, the politicians are only going to free up a ton of money if a bunch of people get killed so that this will never happen again. I'm afraid it doesn't work the other way around. Where you say, look, we're overdue, you've heard that phrase, we're overdue for a big earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. We know enough about the San Andreas Fault's history to know that there are big earthquakes that happen semi-regularly. So please give us a ton of money now so that we can do all this science necessary to avoid what will be a truly disturbing, horrifying event in a major metropolitan area. But you know as well as I, that's not how humans work. It should work that way, but it doesn't. So in general, we are understaffed. This is not a priority. Nobody remembers the last big thing. People get bored. They don't want to listen to the science part of it. They figure there's some other ulterior motive. You can get pretty pessimistic in a a hurry. But there has been a drought, quote-unquote, of big earthquakes in California in the last 50 years. And there is concern. That's an understatement. There is concern of a bad event uh, in the next 20, 30 years. But you've you've already heard my commentary. We know so precious little about the history of each of these segments that it's very difficult to say anything that really has meaning and basis before you freak people out. But to be honest, maybe you just need to freak people out however you can do it. Not to scare them, but to get the leaders of the purse strings to free things up. I am not an environmental geologist. I tend to avoid people versus nature type stuff. Um, Personally, it's disturbing to me for the most part. It's just a bunch of sad stories and a bunch of dumb stories of people doing stupid things and ignoring the science and everything else. But in this case, I I can't just avoid people because that's one of the main reasons that this is an interesting and important set of topics. So I confess to you, I may be out of it with some of the advances in California, but I don't think so. What I am totally on top of is Washington geology. And in the next two episodes of this podcast, we're going to be firmly planted in the Pacific Northwest and realize how different our earthquake histories are here than they are down in California. In other words, the San Andreas Fault does not come up through the Pacific Northwest. And it, to me, is it an inspiring and impressive story of a major advance in understanding plate tectonics and seismic risk just in the last 30 years, just during my teaching career, there's been a complete, abu- abrupt, or abrupt, an abrupt uh, change in our understanding and, more importantly, public awareness. Hey, that's the next couple of episodes of the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast. Conveniently, I'm Nick Zentner, and thank you for listening.